The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So again, welcome everyone. This is uh, week four of our Buddhist studies class on the Four Noble Truths. And uh, this week in particular, we're looking at the second noble truth, this truth that suffering, dissatisfaction, stress arises naturally, conditionally, and that uh, natural arising can be understood. I think I um, put this in our resources from Ajahn Tani Saro, this American Buddhist monk and wonderful scholar. And he's really paraphrasing the Buddha here. He says, the path develops the qualities of mind needed to see that all the possible objects of craving, right, this activity of the body and the mind, are stressful, inconstant, and not self. So in a way, this is the story of our life. You know, if we just observe, mindfully observe what we do, we find that we're craving one thing after another. And we keep looking for craving something that actually leads to satisfaction. But we've been craving this and craving that for a long time. And what have we gotten for it? That's the question. He writes, uh, he continues writing, as a result, one grows dispassionate toward them, right, toward these activities of the body and mind toward our experiences. With nothing left to focus on, craving disbands. When one experiences the remainderless fading, cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving, the problem is solved. And so he's quoting one of the Buddhist texts there. When one experiences the remainderless fading, cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that craving, the problem is solved. And the most common way the Buddha talks about this path of awakening in the full release, the unshakable release of the heart, is that a realization of the mind, this mind, this heart, free of grasping. Now, can we, have we noticed that? So, that's kind of the project for this uh, part of the course. And uh, those of you who are going to stay at 835 for the small groups tonight or find somebody to reflect with later this week, you know, we're we're reflecting in particular now about our understanding. Have we realized um, the truth of letting go? Like, do we know what that is? And of course, we can't realize the truth of letting go of craving unless we get to know it. And this really speaks to the importance of this balanced, and especially tonight, this emphasis on patient attention to the experience of craving. Because you could say that the, the basic pattern is we do experience craving superficially 
and we misinterpret it or we misperceive the craving and we think, I have to gratify, I have to act on that craving, it's my craving. So we're replacing that sort of reflexive response to craving with a more uh, pervasive and stable, patient curiosity. What is this experience of craving? Will, and you could even add a more specific question. Will craving cease on its own? Does somebody, i.e. me, need to do something for craving to go away? Because even though craving on the surface is kind of juicy, it's activating and makes us feel alive, it doesn't take that much stability of awareness to realize that craving is burning, as the Buddha says. Right? The need for things to be other than they are is a kind of burning restlessness, uneasiness. It's a disturbance. So, what do we do with craving? Well, the Buddha says, there is craving. It should be abandoned. And it has been abandoned. These are the three insights. But remember, seeing, like, um, appreciating the relevance that craving should be abandoned, right? We hear this in the suttas and the discourses. This is synonymous with Nibbana, the cessation of craving, the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion, which are the animating forces of craving, right? Greed, hatred, and delusion. And when that ceases, so it's not so much that I'm going to get in there and make craving go away, but we're really realizing that craving, like everything else, it arises, it ceases, it turns out to be impersonal, not self. But those realizations, that deepening of understanding can only come when instead of we're reacting to craving, either by going for it and thinking, if I get what I want, then I'll be satisfied, or rejecting craving. Oh, I shouldn't be craving. I sh I'm a Buddhist. I shouldn't have any craving. And then masking it or denying it or imitating being somebody without craving, which is, of course, craving, more craving. We get interested in it. We get we're willing at least to consider that this is a natural process. And that's why in the guided sit tonight, and I encourage you to, you know, find your way in your home practice of um, emphasizing a sense of ease and contentment, spaciousness, groundedness. And if you've been practicing for a while, you might be able to call on contentment directly. So just to review, um, I, a couple of weeks ago I sent out that, um, I guess a little bit of a cheat sheet in this discourse for each of the four noble truths, there are three insights that develop. So it's really thought of a, as a natural, lawful progression. And so this first study, the first noble truth, there is dukkha. There is this pervasive unsatisfactoriness when we get close, when we look carefully at our experience. There really is 
this natural dissatisfaction with experience. And this dissatisfaction is sort of um, a natural response when we're looking at experience from a self-centered point of view, which is our ordinary way of relating to our experiences in life, then because things are changing, there will be this pervasive dissatisfaction because we can't really get the ground, the final ground that gives me perfect satisfaction. We never get there. And that's uh, dissatisfying, right? It's destabilizing. And the next three insights, so the first three, there is dukkha, should be understood, it has been understood. There is a cause, this cause should be abandoned, it has been abandoned. And this is really the natural response. So when wisdom begins to see the truth of dukkha, there is this this pervasive dissatisfaction, it's relevant, I've been paying attention to it, it's my teacher, I'm stable with it. And then we see, we begin to see that the dukkha as a natural, impersonal process, right? Oh, craving arises, craving ceases, craving's not self. So the second noble truth is there is craving, there is a cause for this dissatisfaction, this uneasiness. My mind, because of habit, is taking craving or I'm sorry, taking desire personally. It's taking craving personally. And when craving is taken personally, right, then this activity of the mind and body is compelled to react. It feels threatened by not getting. It feels like it's going to be rewarded by getting because it's personalized desire, which is a very natural thing to arise. But when we misunderstand desire and we infuse it, imbibe it with a sense of self, a permanent self, then desire becomes, I guess you could say, toxic, right? It's a real cause for suffering. And then the third noble truth, which we'll begin to reflect on next week, there is cessation, right? Suffering arises, suffering ceases. So we can notice that cessation and the mind, wisdom, understands this cessation needs to be fully realized. It has been fully realized. What is, like the heart gets curious, wisdom gets curious about this mind, this heart, free of craving. What is that? You know, we can tell ourselves stories, we can imagine what it is, but can we realize this life, this heart, not animated by craving? What would our life feel and look like? That's an interesting thing to be, I mean, that's something to be curious about. So the... The fourth noble truth then is there is a way to the end of suffering. There's a path, right? This path should be developed. It has been developed. So just the short version of the four noble truths. There is suffering 
and the suffering is conditional, it arises, meaning it's a lawful arising in our hearts, and that means there's some supporting causes when there's craving, there's suffering, right? And that, like everything craving ceases, that's also a lawful thing that the wisdom can understand. When the supporting causes for craving aren't there, then craving isn't there. Oh, well, what are the supporting causes that are there for craving to rise? With that identification with desire, that attachment to desire. When there's no attachment to desire, craving ceases. And we get a little taste of the freedom the Buddha points to. And the path is really supported by the insight that suffering is not self. Suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. It's a line from one of the ancient Buddhist texts. Suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. And we see that on these three areas of the path that we'll talk about at the end of the course. The area of sila, ethical conduct, how we relate to each other. The area of samadhi, how we relate to the activity of our mind. And the area of wisdom or view, how the mind conceives, how the mind views, understands. And if we're, if we're taking any of those three areas of our life personally, that's not the way. So can we engage on this level of morality? Can we live with each other in harmony without personalizing? Is there a way to be engaged, to be a friend, to be a leader, to be a follower, to you know have the, ro the roles and responsibilities we have in life without projecting this sort of separate self in that mix? So that's the Eightfold Path, is really understanding there is suffering, it arises lawfully, it ceases, and it's not self. That whole process of suffering arising and ceasing isn't personal. And then the path is really about integrating that it isn't personal, this truth of anatta, that things arise and pass and are not self. So a little bit more about craving, and I mentioned earlier, so at 8.35 I'll stop, and for those who want to um, have time tonight to meet in small groups. Michelle will help us uh, break into small groups. Those who are interested will go to a Zoom room. Uh, Michelle will divide you into groups of three or so. And you'll have about 20 minutes to have a conversation. And the conversation is really like, what have we learned in our life? And more uh, importantly, these last couple of weeks, about this identification with desire. And that craving that arises with the identification with desire, there's a problem, <laughs> the suffering arises, and moments of seeing that ceasing. It's such a remarkable moment, and I'm sure that we've all had it where we've really been obsessed about wanting something, and all of a sudden, without getting what we wanted, the mind is no longer obsessed. It lasts, it lasts, it can last for a long time. We can be caught in that vortex for certainly hours, maybe not continuously. 
And if we get really good, we'll see that discontinuity of our obsession with whatever our current obsession might be. And to really have a moment of recognizing that that desiring with attachment has ceased. And when there was desiring with attachment, craving, there was a personal problem. I had a problem, right? I want this. And now, wisdom sees it's not there. And it, it has a momentary taste of having been bound up, now what's there is the release of having been bound up. Now this all sounds very ordinary, but there's something extraordinary that begins to happen, we become changed when we train our mind to notice that craving arises, suffering arises, and it ceases. And that's really the work, the insight of the second noble truth. Suffering arises and it ceases. So these are some uh, quotes from the suttas, from the discourses. People who are not free from lust for central, uh, who are not free um, from lust for central pleasures, who are devoured by craving for central pleasures, who burn with the fevers of central pleasures, still indulge in central pleasures, i.e. all of us, right? At least in moments, for sure. The more we indulge, the more our craving for central pleasures increase and the more we're burned by the fever of them. Yet, we find a certain measure of satisfaction and enjoyment independence on these central pleasures. Sights that we like to see, sounds that we like to hear, smells that we like to smell, tastes that we like to taste, and touches that we like to touch, and even thoughts about these sense pleasures that we like to think, right? There's a certain pleasure. And the Buddha doesn't reject that pleasure. Hopefully you, you probably can guess what the Buddha says. We should get to know, right? We want to really know the experience of gratification, just like, and he goes on to talk about, we really want to get to know the experience the drawbacks of this dependence or this craving for sense pleasure. Formerly, when I lived the household life, this is the Buddha, I enjoyed myself, provided and endowed with sense pleasure. On later occasions, having understood as they really are, gratification, the drawbacks or defects and disadvantages, and the release in the case of sense pleasure, I abandoned craving for them. I remove the fever of them, and I dwell without thirst, with a heart inwardly at peace. There is delight apart from sense pleasure, apart from unwholesome states, which surpass, surpasses even the most sublime bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. So what is this higher happiness, let's call it, that the Buddha is pointing to? Because we know the happiness 
of getting what we want. It's something. The Buddha, like I said, he talks about gratification in a way for me is that's very trustworthy. Like just acknowledging there is gratification. It should be understood. Right? We want to understand that experience of gratification because in really getting intimate with the experience of gratification, we begin to understand the drawback of the dependence on sense experience. Not the drawback inherent in sense experience, but the drawback inherent in our dependence on sense experience. And when we really understand the drawback inherent in our dependence and our needing sense experience, because we've personalized our desire, craving, then we think, I need this. And so then we're vulnerable to the sense experiences that come and go. And as you know, nobody is in perfect control of all the, that movement of sense experiences. I don't always get pleasant sights or pleasant smells and pleasant sounds and pleasant touches and pleasant thoughts. I don't. Sometimes it's nice and pleasant, sometimes it's not. So if I'm constructing, conceiving of a me whose happiness is dependent on having pleasantness and away from having unpleasantness, well then I've created a lot of existential anxiety because sense pleasures are not under my control nor are they under anybody's control. Does it even matter how privileged you are? I mean, certainly some people with a lot of privilege, a lot of good fortune, you know, might have access to a lot more pleasurable experience than unpleasurable, a painful experience. But even those very uh, privileged folks, not in control. So the Buddha says about this, this is his sort of summation. O practitioners, I set out seeking gratification in the world. Whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have found. I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far the gratification extends. I set out seeking the drawbacks in the world. Whatever drawbacks there are in the world, that I have found. I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far the drawbacks in the world extend. I set out seeking release, freedom from the world. Whatever release there is from the world, from sense experience, that I have found. I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far freedom from the world extends. And this is our path too. It's not enough that the Buddha did this. Right? We have to do it ourselves. And I mentioned last week, you know, the Buddha breaks craving down, <coughs> craving sense experience, craving to become somebody, craving for uh, things to be done. So the key is to, like I mentioned at the beginning, to stabilize that interest in craving. And you know you've stabilized when you see that the mind is attached and you're patient with that attachment. You're not afraid of it, right? So you're using some borrowed wisdom, right? Where you look at your attachment 
your clinging, your reactivity, and you're practicing seeing it as nature. Oh yeah, this is happening. I'm really overwhelmed. I'm upset. It feels like this. This is how it is sometimes, right? See, with those sorts of, whether you use those actual phrases or something like that, or just have that understanding, you're creating some space. You're normalizing craving as a natural phenomenon, which means you can be patient with it. You can observe it patiently, patiently, that it arises and possibly with patience to see that it ceases. Because the more that we get curious, this wise, stable, present moment awareness, with attachment, with the mind that is attached, we're looking at it, observing it, feeling what it feels like, you know, whatever it might be. Wanting to go to bed tonight. Wanting the pandemic to be over. Wanting the election to be over. And with a certain kind of ending that we prefer, right? And when I'm identified with any of those kinds of desires, right, the, the heart is burning. It's bound up with that desiring and the identification. And then when I, that suffering wakes me up and activates wisdom, okay, this is what the Buddha said to contemplate. This is the contemplation of the second noble truth. There is dukkha. Now I understand that. I see the dukkha as a natural, conditional coming and going. It is alive. It's here and now. Right here and now in my mind, right? It's only then that with that patient curiosity that we see, oh, it's the, I'm, the mind is identifying with desire. I'll be satisfied, I'll be happy, I'll be safe when this happens. I need this to go away in order to be safe. I need to become somebody, I need... So it's one of those three kinds of cravings. Wanting some experience, wanting to become somebody, wanting to be done with it all, right? And we observe that patiently. We see the cause that should be abandoned. Right? What is the cause? It's this all of this activity of the mind and body. It feels very personal. Somebody feels like they've got uh, they're dependent on how things play out, and we just observe that attachment, that clinging, that selfing. We observe it. We observe it, and like everything, without you making it go away, just being curious about it, will. It removes the ignorance which attachment depends on. So when the, in a sense, when the mind takes the position of Buddha, the one who knows, it's no longer in the position the one who craves. So by cultivating this wise and stable and patient presence with craving, the mind has removed the necessary supporting cause for craving which is ignorance, identification. And then because the cause has been removed, then there will be a moment where craving goes away, the ending of craving. And that stable, mindful awareness will see craving has ceased. 
And that's a very powerful moment. And we want to start noticing how we become changed the more and more we see how craving ceased without me needing to get something or get rid of something or become somebody. We could be feeling and identified feeling very unloved, not heard, alone, a lot of loneliness and identification with the loneliness and really feeling the weight of all of that. And then we go through these 12 insights, the first six at least. There is dukkha, I'm hurting, it's irrelevant, I'm going to relax with it, I'm going to stabilize some present moment awareness. Ah, now, because I've stabilized with the dukkha of loneliness, I see what's happening as a, a dynamic right here. Conditional, lawful unfolding. When the mind is personalizing the not liking of loneliness or the wanting social connection, when the mind's personalizing it, oh yeah, I don't need to, I shouldn't take it so personally. But we just observe that. We don't try to fix it. We just see like this uh, alive tension. Oh yeah, the identification isn't helping. It should be abandoned. This is the root of it all. And it does fall away because now the spacious, non-judging presence removes the identification. Being aware of the mind being identified is not the same as being attached or identified. When we can be stably, mindfully aware of identification, attachment, clinging, then the mind isn't identified with the clinging. And this is a whole path. The Buddhist path is a path of transforming understanding. Right? That's the intervention in the endless cycling of suffering. The intervention isn't to kind of get over it or to get better. It's to understand it. Because the repeated cycles of suffering depend on not seeing it clearly. When the mind, when the heart starts to see things clearly, suffering loses its supporting cause, which is ignorance, not seeing clearly. And I mentioned, I think last week, that Gil um, Fronsdahl, just a really powerful interview about, you know, the real insight in the second noble truth is realizing the inconstancy of craving. Craving, like everything else, comes and goes. It's a lawful, conditional thing. And I, I've been repeating this a lot so that we get interested. And so tonight in the small groups, it's really a chance to begin to just unpack. Like, what have you learned about your experience of craving? And I encourage you, whether you do it tonight with the small groups or you find a time in the next few days to have a conversation to share what you've been learning about craving, that you practice talking about it in impersonal ways. And you hear me modeling that sometimes, you know. You know, there was attachment. I noticed attachment. As opposed to saying, I was attached. So I know it can seem like a small thing to leave the personal pronoun out, but we're really training the mind to relate to craving as a natural phenomenon. Because that's what it is. It's something that comes and goes and is not self. It's a, per, a impersonal process. 
No, it feels, you know, obviously it's here and now in the body, in the mind. That's where we notice the experience of attachment. But what we observe is attachment being known. We don't observe the one who was attached. We observe the phenomena of attachment. So we're just getting very clear about our actual experience of attachment or craving. And really getting curious, is the Buddha or our spiritual elders correct that craving arises and passes, passes away and is not self? Dukkha itself arises and passes away and is not self. I'll just end with this uh, little teaching. This is also from Ajahn Tanisar, who I mentioned earlier in the evening, um, a wonderful Buddhist translator and Dharma teacher, Buddhist monk. And he, he often, or I've, I've read several times, where he refers to a teaching he got from one of his teachers when he was uh, practicing as a monk in Thailand with some of the, the great forest Ajahns, the Thai forest tradition um, elders. And one of them talked about, you know, mountains are only heavy when you try to lift them. So sense experience and even desire is only a problem when we try to own it or we become dependent on it. And that's a very, that gives us, I think, for me at least, a very useful clue about how to navigate this human experience of having a lot of desire. And naturally, you know, when you look at a baby, you know, babies after a few months, they know what they want, you know, and they know how to cling to mom or dad and they know how to get the milk and, and they know what they don't like and they show the world, right? They So this sort of movement of desire and this activation of the body and mind in response to desiring is just like part of the living process, right? part of having a mind and body. But we, we kind of take a turn at some point in the sort of process of growing up, maybe right there from the beginning. But this desiring, this very natural desiring is just interpreted as me or mine. And that just sets in motion a lot of suffering. So, you know, we have this sensitive heart, this sensitive body. We have these natural likes and dislikes. But can we navigate this territory of living, having a life, having experience, without being confused by all the natural, unavoidable desires that come our way? that get triggered, let's call it, or stimulated. Oh, the heart wants this. The heart likes that. heart doesn't want. The heart does want. And just to uh, have a lot of space around it. And to remind yourself, like when there is a strong desire, yeah, there's a strong desire. It feels like this. And the Buddha says, and my experience tells me that desires come and go. And even attachment to desire comes and goes. And if I 
allow the mind to get swept away with attachment, then I'll feel like I'm really suffering. That's just the law. <laughs> this is the law. And so when you find that you're suffering, just say, oh, what's the heart attached to? In order for there to be suffering, in order for me to feel like I'm really suffering, my heart must be attached. Well, where is that? So these are some of the things you can share uh, share about in your small group tonight. Just like take a little vignette in your craving life. Oh yeah, two days ago I had this little craving storm, right? And this is what I learned about that. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.